Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. None of us are necessarily going to be Mother Teresa. We don't have that capacity. We don't have that dedication. We don't have that kind of like grace. But the question is, and this goes back to like our, the, the beginning, like what defines success? You know, do we care better about being rich and famous or do we care more about just being good people? And then what's the definition of, of a good person and how do you become a good person and why is it important even to be a good person? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sanjay, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, thank you very much for the opportunity. This is really, really exciting. Yeah. So I was introduced to you by way of, I believe, your publicist, and uh, I found out a little bit about your story and was extremely intrigued, I think. Largely because we not only share Berkeley in common, but you happen to be an Indian person who has built a career in the arts. Uh, so the the natural question that comes from that is, what did your parents do for a living, and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Both my parents um, are Indian, and they both were from very small villages in um, in rural India, and it was just by virtue of their excellence in academics that they were able to kind of transcend uh, their backgrounds. And they ended up in the United States in the 70s as professors. Uh-huh. So how did that impact the choices that you made? From, from an East Asian background, I'm sure you can appreciate the fact that education was everything in my family. And yeah, well, I'm the uh, son of a college professor, so I know. <laughs> there you go. I, I was expected to be um, a doctor. Um, uh-huh. At the same time, you know, my parents had me do everything I possibly could do in terms of extracurricular activities. They they looked at the United States really as like a cornucopia of opportunities to build character, but there wasn't necessarily an understanding of the various opportunities to measure success. Mm-hmm. For them, success meant financial security and it meant um, really uh, kind of self-determination, like economic security uh, on, mm-hmm. on a number of different levels. But after I went to Berkeley and realized exactly what pre-med entailed and how disinterested I was in that, um, they began to see that perhaps their idea of an American dream wasn't necessarily one that that I would adopt. Mm-hmm. Curiously enough, when I was a sophomore, I came across an Indian spiritual teacher, a guru named Sri Chinmoy. Uh, he grew up in South India in Pondicherry as a disciple of 
a revolutionary turned saint named Sri Aurobindo. And the idea of pursuing an inner education just captivated me. You know, as, as a sophomore, especially at, at a gigantic school, mm. so many of, of one's questions about life go totally unanswered and even unaddressed. Yeah. You know, college doesn't necessarily build good people. There's the idea that success means becoming financially independent and perhaps rich. And mm-hmm. there's no sense of what it means to be a good person. And I wasn't getting that in any of my classes. And so when I came across Eastern meditation and Eastern philosophy, particularly the spiritual teacher, I realized like, that's my way forward. And the interesting thing is that my parents, although they're extremely, extremely happy now, they looked at this as a step backwards. Like why go to America and why live in America only to renounce everything and study with an Indian spiritual teacher? Mm-hmm. So after graduating from Cal with a really high grade point average, I moved to New York City and ended up working in a health food store for $100 a week. But I ended up traveling the world with Sri Chinmoy and you know meeting a lot of his friends from Desmond Tutu to Mother Teresa and really living a life of, as a devotee, uh, mm-hmm. which I still do. He, he passed away in 2007, but I realized when he passed away, when I was effectively 33 years old, that I'd had 13 years of, of my, of, I spent 13 years of my life with him. But at the age of 33, if I'd gone down the more traditional path that my, my parents had wanted me to then, I would have just been entering the workforce as mm-hmm. a neurologist. And the experiences that I had in those, that, that interim period of, of 13 years were absolutely invaluable to my outlook on life, to my development as a human being, and to my understanding of what I want to do with my life. And that more than anything has made my parents the happiest people I know. Yeah. It's so interesting because uh, you're in this environment at a place like Berkeley where, like you said, a lot of those questions go unanswered. I mean, to me, I was kind of shocked that most of these questions weren't things that I started asking until 30. And so I wonder why you think it is that you were self-aware enough to have that realization as early as, as you know, you did, uh, because like to me, Berkeley was basically a, a series of checkboxes determined to do with one purpose in mind. And that was to get me the most prestigious job I could possibly land. And that strategy was pretty much a disaster because I got shit grades and I didn't land the most you know prestigious job. But I have always felt that when I when I look at Berkeley now, I thought, wow, I've missed out on a world of opportunities because I treated college, the purpose of college, as uh, getting a job. I'm totally with you. And I, I can't ascribe my path to anything more than just luck. When we look at the education system in the West and really the colonial education system, the idea of success is not based on character. It's based on, it's not even based on contribution. It's based on the idea of power or money or both. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the idea of just merely studying uh, a particular topic in a basement is not nearly as prestigious or powerful as getting a gigantic stream of grants and being in a prestigious university. At the same time, None of our outer education focuses on one's inherent connection 
with, let's say the universe or the divine or mother earth or father sky or whatever, you know, one wants to call it, the idea of finding purpose in life doesn't come from an outer vocation. It doesn't even come from family, having family. It comes from pursuing the idea of an inner education, of looking within oneself for answers. And I just came across that, you know, totally randomly. Um, and it didn't come from school so much as it came from uh, a little bit of curiosity and a lot of reading and uh, a recognition that a lot of what I discovered in just the library in these spiritual books that people normally come across, like you said, when they're in their 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. really held answers to questions that many of us had. And I certainly had when I was 18 or 19. Mm. So I think that what was interesting to me is that you said, you know, you graduated with a really high GPA, which I, I know from having been to Berkeley, you graduate with a high GPA, you have a smorgasbord of opportunities. Uh, you know, I think, but the thing that's interesting is that, and I don't think this is isolated to Berkeley. I think this is kind of a standard a sort of uh, formula for most people who end up in what we call elite colleges. You know, people put a list of majors in front of you and you choose from the options in front of you. Based on those majors, you're basically eligible for a certain number of jobs based on your GPA. So those are more options in front of you. And, you know, I I said this in a a recent new book that I've written uh, that's a self-published book called The Scenic Route. And I said, you know, so often we just let, let the options that are in front of us blind us to the possibilities that surround us. And I'm wondering, one, why do you think that is? And two, when you're in an environment with such a, a powerful social narrative of, hey, the most Im- impressive thing you would do is go to Goldman Sachs or get a job at McKinsey or, or go to Google, where, whereas you know, if you went to Berkeley and you told somebody that you went to school with, yeah, working at Goldman Sachs sounds like a terrible fucking idea, they would think you're out of your mind. It, it's, it's, it's really difficult in the sense that much of, of Western society focuses, I believe, on the preservation of ego, Mm. on the preservation of identity. But in order to get really good at anything in life, uh, and this isn't just something ancient, this is something that actually I think is, is, is true now, you know, one needs to have a mentor. And if you look at people that really, I mean, you, you know, from, from our generation, if you really wanted to get into med school, you needed to have a recommendation from a professor in whose lab you worked. You, you needed a, a mentor to recommend you, not just someone with um, a distant relationship. And that idea of surrendering your expectations, surrendering your outlook, into the hands of someone else is something that obviously doesn't exist in many places in the workforce. Um, it doesn't exist in many places in life, but the most successful people, most of the most successful people that, that we can think of had that type of relationship in their life where they were able to surrender, surrender their ego to some degree and really take the advice of somebody more senior to heart. And, and that happens in this day and age, you know, primarily by luck. I mean, even if you look at professional athletes, you know, so much of their success depends on their coaches. Um, mm-hmm. So much depends on, you know, their ability to learn from the best, whether it's a coach or a, a, a teammate. And we don't necessarily understand from an early age or from the beginning of a journey that that's a critical, a critical part of anybody's success. Mm-hmm. 
It, it, it's interesting because uh, you're right. We, we don't educate in that way in a lot of ways. I, that would have never occurred to me when I was younger to, to go out and look for the kind of person. Because I've read stories about people who attended college at the same time. There's a guy named Ori Braffman who went to school right around the same time I did, wrote a book called The Chaos Imperative. And he actually shares stories in The Chaos Imperative. And I feel like I'm reading about a college that wasn't the one I went to most often. And uh, that, that always really struck me. So I, I wonder, I mean, you are like I have always jokingly said I'm a failed byproduct of the education system, yet you walked out of Berkeley with a really high GPA and you still went to go and choose, you know, to work for a hundred dollars a week at a grocery store. So I wonder, you know, as somebody who was successful within the system, what do you, what are your criticisms of it and how would you change it? That's a very, very deep question. You know, I, 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 I think at the heart of it, you know, it, it, it starts in early childhood development to develop good people rather than rich people. You know, not everybody is going to be able to take advantages, take advantage of opportunities that the quote unquote most mentally gifted people will. At the same time, you know, we find that many people who end up being mentally gifted in their late twenties and thirties you know, don't exhibit those signs necessarily when they're in elementary school. Um, and so, you know, we're always trying to create a one size fits all program and I'm not trying to suggest anything different, but there are so many more avenues where people can have positive, healthy, fulfilling lives. And does our educational system, you know, allow that? Do we give people the tools that they need in order to make decisions when they want to? And when I look at my own kind of like my, my own, my own spiritual path, you know, I look back at 19 year old Sanjay and go, that guy was really, really brave. You know, when I went to study with Sri Chinmoy, like, like any professor or any teacher, there's a set of conditions. Um, when it comes to character building from a guru or from a traditional Eastern spiritual teacher, those conditions can seem starkly um, in opposition to our Western idea of freedom. He basically said, if you want to study under, under me, and if you want the goals um, that I can help guide you to, like universal love, like a deep sense of, of self-understanding, eventually self-discovery, you, know, you have to abstain from alcohol, you have to abstain from meat, you have to abstain from smoking, and you have to abstain from sex. You have to be entirely celibate to be able to focus all of your inner energy on the loftiest of goals. And you know, it's not to say that you can't reach the highest by doing any one of those things. That's there's no hard and fast rules, but his path required certain rules, the same way that, you know, any you know martial arts coach would require a different set, but equally disciplined um, uh, attitudes. So in, in in that light, you know, I I took a gigantic leap, um, but from the beginning, it was clear that in order to reach a certain goal, I had to be willing to make sacrifices. You know, I had to be willing to do what my heart told me and not what other people were kind of pumping into my ears and into my head. Hmm. Uh, do you have siblings? I don't. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I wonder then what role do you think, uh, 
your being an only child played in the kinds of narratives that your parents passed on about security, about uh, financial and economic security, and what you should do with your career. Because uh, the reason I asked that is I think that when I, I uh, you know talk to people who grew up in immigrant families, it seems like the sibling, particularly the older one and the younger one, always have a wildly different experience of their own parents and the experience of growing up in this country. You know, like when when I when I graduated and decided not to go to med school or graduate school and moved to New York City, my, my parents were initially devastated. And that was mainly out of a sense of, of love and, and worry. Um, but at the same time, most of us who don't come from um, a, a, a multi-generation American family, and in, in many cases from a, a, a Caucasian family, don't necessarily understand how many opportunities there are in this country. I mean, I'm a documentary filmmaker now, and as you know, I've made a few movies. My last one was 3100 Run and Become, about the world's longest running race combined with you know indigenous and ancestral practices of running, the Navajo, the Kalahari Bushmen, uh, these el- elusive monks in, in Kyoto. And there's no way that my parents or my relatives or really most first generation Americans understand that that's a profession and that there is a path to achieving success in those professions and in the arts. And my, my parents are, are extraordinarily happy, happy because all they wanted for me was to differentiate myself from the quote unquote normal American. Um, to make to take advantage of all the, the the multifarious opportunities a young, you know, ambitious person can actually have in this country, and they just they always wanted uh, me to pursue excellence. They just didn't necessarily have the language and and the security that that pursuit of excellence could, you know, could look like something that they could that they had no idea about. So one of the, the the things that you know we were talking about is you said you know often uh, like success or talent doesn't tend to emerge until you know somebody's in their late twenties or, or even late thirties, and particularly growing up Indian, I think we have this really uh, strange obsession with ageism almost to the point where you know I think you get to be forty whatever like you start to look like uh, you know you have you're a ticking time bomb uh, waiting to go off if certain things haven't happened. And and I wonder wh- why you think that is like why my, I always joke that I think Indians on you know are on what Randy Kumasar calls a, a deferred life plan because they believe in reincarnation. Yeah, you know, f- f- funny enough, I actually know Randy pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was a scientist, and Ran- Randy at at Clanna Perkins ended up buying my dad's company. Okay. Um, so it, it, it's it's interesting, and I, I again, this is why I think. The, the film 3100 Run and Become is so interesting. I think a lot of Indian ageism is a very modern thing. And it comes from, you know, and I could be totally wrong about this, but it comes from a, a, a total ignorance or disinterest in the body. You look at ancient India, and we're a culture of warriors. I, our, our most epic um, uh, spiritual treaties, the Bhagavad Gita, literally took place on the battlefield. Spirituality and physical fitness 
couldn't be separated. In fact, you know, the people with the warrior bodies also had the warrior minds. They were deeply espoused or ensconced in, in, in the philosophical pursuits, and they were deeply self-aware of the meaning of life. And when you think of ancient India, Krishna, the Pandavas, you know, Arjuna, etc., um, you look at Rama, Lakshmana, Sita, and you look at the concept of Indian society today, that, that the reality is that Indians feel that pursuits of, of excellence only happen in the soul and in the mind. And therefore, you know, when the, the, the body gets older, you start, you know, losing a sense of those opportunities. But in the movie, people are running 3,100 miles inspired by an Indian teacher, Sri Chinmoy, um, and understanding that the, the body's progress aids the mind's progress, that physical fitness is of paramount importance to achieving a sense of peace of mind. Um, so people in India tend to think that when you're 35, when you're 40, your life is over. Um, and I think that's inherently because we look at the body as something that, that we can't necessarily or don't want to control in the way that, you know, Western culture wants to control and can control the body. It's, it's interesting you say that because I, I went back to India for the first time in 10 years uh, this past year uh, in December in, in 2018 to, to shop for my sister's wedding. And the difference in culture there was shocking because I, I was talking to my cousin. He said, yeah, man, he's everywhere you go, you'll see you know CrossFit gyms, uh, fitness studios. He said that the young people's mindset has changed. I think that they're I think finally taking this more seriously because I think we all watched our parents get diabetes and we're like, OK, we don't want to end up like that. I'm totally with you. And and I, I it's I I look at that from from two angles that it's because of the the lack of focus on the body that India was colonized. I mean, again, the land of Krishna and Arjuna was captured by like pasty British sailors. Um, that would have never happened five thousand years ago. In fact, you know, Alexander the Great, you know, marching eastward conquered all of the Persian countries, but was stopped cold in India. Um, and that's because Indians were the best warriors in the world. At the same time, you know, for more than 2000 years, about a quarter or more of the world's GDP was generated by the subcontinent. We were the economic powerhouse. We were the cultural powerhouse. We were the spiritual powerhouse. We were the physical powerhouse. And the question is, why did that happen? A lot of it, I, I believe, is because we divorced our sense of spirituality from the physical world. And people began to have these misguided notions that everything in the outer world was Maya, that everything was an illusion. Um, and it bred a sense of deep, deep weakness, which was only exacerbated by the poverty that colonization um, really instigated. And now, as you said, you know, people's mental attitudes are changing. People are looking to the West, for better or for, for worse, looking to the West to kind of reinstill that dynamic quality that India had for thousands of years. So when did uh, the whole physical fitness thing start for you? Because I can probably tell you, I could count on, you know, one hand or one calendar month, the number of times I set foot in a fitness facility while I was in school. And now, you know, at 41, uh, I'm an avid surfer and snowboarder, which I would have never in a million years guessed. Uh, 
And largely, I think what drove it was the fact that it uh, did something for me spiritually that I had never experienced before. I, I, I think I, I said that I don't think I ever understood truly what it meant to be present until I stood up on a surfboard for the first time. Where, where do you surf, by the way? Because I, 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 I grew up surfing up and down the uh, Central Coast. Okay. Uh, well, I live in San Diego right now. So sounds like we'll have to get together and surf. I mean, people don't realize that San Diego has more surf breaks per square mile than almost yeah. any place oh, in the world. Fun fact, you would probably like to know this. So I went surfing in India for the first time this year. You would never guess this, and I'm about to ruin it by telling everybody who's listening. The most uncrowded waves on the planet are in the most crowded country on Earth. There's 300 yeah. surfers in all of India. There's 300 surfers in like a mile radius of where I live in Cardiff. I, I, I'm, I, I to, I, I'm totally with you. You know, in, in terms of your question, I didn't grow up around other Indians. My, my parents were, were both the first from their families to come to the United States. And, you know, I didn't know that they, they, they happened to move to communities that didn't have a lot of Indians, like the East Bay in Northern California in 1980, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't spillover from Silicon Valley as it is now. Um, and so my, my elementary school, my junior high school, my high school were predominantly, I mean, vast, but like maybe 85%, 90% Caucasian. And so, you know, my, I just did what kids did. And I started playing baseball at the age of five, started playing soccer. And you know, my parents, again, wanted me to do every single thing I possibly could. So I, you know, played a couple of instruments. I, you know, was an Eagle Scout, played three or four sports. I was a three-sport varsity athlete. Started surfing when I was 15 because friends, parents spent a lot of time at the beach. Um, and I was good at it. You know, I was a, a, I was a, a state ranked runner. Um, but again, it's like when I went to university, I, I could have run on the Cal track team, but it stood in the way of what success meant. You know, I, I couldn't run and still be pre-med and do all the lab work that I needed to do. And so in that sense, it's like college really, instead of opening my mind, it really, really limited me in those first couple of years. So how do you go from uh, working in a grocery store for $100 a week to becoming a filmmaker? Walk me through how that happens. So in, in a nutshell, uh, I got to spend a lot of time with my teacher, Sri Chinmoy, and I almost feel like I was, I, I came to New York as a lump of clay and he slowly molded me into, you know, I guess a pot or something. Um, and I, I, I just did what he said. I kind of, you know, did as much as I could to develop myself spiritually. Um, after seven or eight years in New York, he kind of literally like gave me like pushes in certain directions um, to start working with some of his friends like Desmond Tutu. Um, and I gradually realized that a lot of my time was being spent um, in the world of, of international development. And, you know, with enough experience just doing favors and being a volunteer to some of these quite illustrious people, I developed a skill set that one couldn't get in a university 
and, you know, I ended up doing projects in 30, 40, 50 countries um, from the year 2000 to 2007. And then he passed away and I was a little bit rudderless, but kept going with this idea of, of being of service and working in international development, working in, in philanthropy, nonprofit, and ended up working for a number of filmmakers. I, I worked in war zones and conflict zones and invariably worked in areas that attracted documentary filmmakers and news crews. And after having helped a number of, of people, clients, friends, so on and so forth, from a distance on their films, I realized that, you know, I, I, I had stories to tell and maybe I had a, a vantage um, to be able to tell stories that weren't just entertaining, but that hopefully could be inspiring, that looked at unique spiritual aspects of life that crossed cultures. And so I just, you know, picked up a camera and started making short films and apparently they didn't suck. Um, and I've realized I could spend more and more of my time on that. Um, my first film I started making in 2011, it was kind of like a, a, a weirdly autobiographical film in the sense that it, it touched so many aspects of, of my own life indirectly. The film was called Food Chains. It was about a small group of tomato pickers in Southern Florida, um, the coalition of Immokalee workers, the CIW that protested against the largest buyers of tomatoes from Florida uh, for higher wages and for, for better conditions. I mean, these are people six, seven, eight steps away in the supply chain. Like they would protest outside Taco Bells, um, demanding that Taco Bell forced, force farmers to treat workers well. And this model, 10 years after it started, you know, ended up changing the entire supply chain of, of the tomato industry to the effect that these workers ended up getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom from, the, from Secretary Kerry at the White House. They were honored by the MacArthur Foundation as fellows, the Genius Award, so to speak, a couple of years ago. And my film was about them. It was just like a, just a David versus Goliath story. Eva Longoria ended up producing it. Forrest Whitaker ended up narrating it. It did well, but the reason why I say it's, it's sort of biographical in nature is that my dad was a tomato scientist and I spent summers in California and in other states like deeply like just surrounded by tomatoes and at the same time you know in the early 2000s I did a lot of work with impacted populations human rights modern day slavery trafficking and to realize that a lot of those issues that I worked on overseas existed not simply in Florida but in the tomato industry that really gave my family you know, a leg up as first generation immigrants in the US. It really struck close to home. Um, and after I made that movie, my father couldn't have been the, the, couldn't have been prouder. In India, he was a part of revolutionary movements um, for citizens' rights. You know, he was, he went to grad school in, in the US in the 60s and was on the outskirts of the free speech movement. And, you know, had always been aware of human rights issues in agriculture, but his focus was on the science. And when he saw that his son was able to, to address the things that he cared about, um, but in a way that was creative and in a way that was, 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 a, was a profession, he realized that, that what, that's success. It's like, there's nothing better for a first generation immigrant than to do so well that your kid gets to be a documentary filmmaker. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. The the parallels between our lives are uncanny to me because my dad is a professor in agriculture as well. Oh, no way. <laughs> how, 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 how old is he? Uh, he is almost 70. He's like 68, I think. But the guy looks like he's 40. What, what is he is he teaching now? Yeah, at UC Riverside. 
I'm sure my dad knows that my, my dad worked like in the agricultural industry in California, a number of different levels on state, on policy for a lot of private sector companies since 1980. Wow. They, they would certainly know the same people. And there's a guy in, in Riverside named A.G. Uh, Kawamura, who used to be the secretary of agriculture okay. um, that used to work with my dad. And I'm sure your dad knows him very well. Well, a small world. So one of the things I wonder, um, you've you know referenced uh, this guru that you had uh, multiple times throughout our, our conversation, and this is something I, I wonder about as somebody who you know, shares this kind of information, exposes people to spiritual teachers uh, and different ideas. I, I wonder at, at what point the relationship between you know a, a guru and a, a student changes to the point where it's no longer one of dependency because. I think that this is something that uh, I've become hyper aware of just because of, of the people that I talk to is that so often these relationships become ones of dependency where you are more or less in a situation where you depend on the guru, like to the point where you're attached. Uh, and so I wonder at what point that relationship changed for, for somebody like you and, and, you know, what are your overall views on that whole idea? You know, in an ideal scenario, there would never be dependency. And I, I think that just speaks to the misunderstanding of what a guru is. There are, are tons of self-styled teachers, and we know that from the, the yoga craze on up, that anybody who gives spiritual advice to someone you know, if their ego is involved, they kind of take on a persona that engenders that dependency. My own experience, I, I, I went to a number of different spiritual groups before, before end up ending up settling on, on studying with Sri Chinmoy, but never once did I ever feel that anyone but myself was in charge of my life. And he, in my, in, in my own experience, almost didn't allow that type of attitude to grow. As, as, soon, as soon as there's the idea of, of dependency, that you can't live without a teacher or that a, you, you, you need your teacher to help you make every decision in your outer life, well, then you're doing things for the wrong reason. Because the idea is to become so in tune with your own inner life and to begin to understand motivations that are coming from within us all the time, but that we don't necessarily filter out properly. I mean, we all hear voices. We all have like intuition. We all have, you know, questions and spirituality is just understanding where those impulses come from and which ones will take us to a positive result and which ones will take us to a more ephemeral result. Um, and so a teacher is basically helping you listen to that inner voice better. And on occasion, a teacher can, uh, can help you from, or prevent you from making an outer mistake. Um, but more often than not, the best teachers really teach you in silence and don't address you know, your spiritual concerns and questions outwardly. They'll push you in a direction like you know, Sri Chinmoy telling me to work for Desmond Tutu seemed like it wasn't so much of uh, uh, 
a command to work in a specific industry. Other than that, he knew that if I worked for Desmond Tutu, I would discover talents within myself. And so he never told me to go like read this book, study for that test, you know, pursue a particular career. He kind of allowed me to discover that for myself. If this makes any sense. Yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely does. I think it's, it's uh, <clears throat> fascinating that that would be, be the case. Um, I wonder uh, in your own experience, uh, why running? Like, what is it about running that has become this incredible spiritual practice for you? Uh, it, what is it about running? It, like, I think my, my closest exposure to the idea of running was the uh, Haruki Murakami book, uh, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, uh, which is really in a lot of ways a book about writing, which is why I loved it so much. But I think that when I hear runners talk about running, they sound as insane as I do when I talk about surfing. You know, there's, there's, there's obviously a lot of similarities when you're doing a sport that requires you, requires dependence only on yourself and is an, has a kind of an integral component with nature. So surfing, skiing, hiking, running, um, as opposed to, you know, basketball, baseball, football, for this example. In the movie 3100 Run and Become, to kind of explore the very question you asked, we spend time with the San Bushman of the Kalahari in the Kalahari Desert in Botswana, um, where they've lived for more than 125,000 years. And evolutionary biologists don't say that we all descended from Bushmen, but they say that every single human being on earth has DNA markers that have only come from the Bushmen. So at some point, whatever um, lineages we came from, there was a, a mixing with, with the Bushmen. So they still live for the most part, or to at least some degree, as hunter-gatherers in one of the most foreboding places on the planet. And they exhibit the evolutionary advantage that ancient humans had, the only evolutionary advantage that we had you know, in the savannah. And that was the ability to run long distances very slowly and carry water. And so when they hunt large, large game, the tactic is to chase the game away from watering holes until after 24, 36, or 48 hours, they can literally walk up to these 2,000 pound, totally dehydrated um, mammals and kill them with like rudimentary techniques. Um, and so... When we went to spend time with them, you know, we, we approached the question of physicality versus spirituality. Like what came first in their own tradition? The, the necessity to run so that we could catch food or the ability to express oneself through running spiritually. And they said that when they run, they harness the power of Mother Earth. And it's that power which allows them to to go long distances to capture animals and so in a sense running is a vehicle to deeper understanding of nature and to oneself when we spent time with the navajo in the southwest of the u.s they said for them running is three things running is a teacher running is a celebration of life but on the metaphysical level running is prayer when you run your feet pray to Mother Earth, you're breathing in Father Sky. And when you look at Murakami's book and kind of this, the, 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 the small subset of esoteric writing on running, 
everyone has a similar experience at, at some point of feeling a deeper connection to Mother Earth, to nature, and something that's triggered within through the breath. It's literally the activity that allowed us to survive. And it's the most animalistic thing we can do um, to connect physically with the world. And so when, when I pursued running as a high schooler, it wasn't about that at all. It was about just winning. Um, but as I, I started making this movie, which looks at the world's longest running race, 3,100 miles, people do 60 miles a day for 52 days, all around a half mile loop in Queens, New York City. The first question is like, why would anybody do that? <laughs> yeah. You know, is, is it all about suffering? And as it happens, it's not. You know, after a couple of days of running, you end, almost enter into, a, a, you, you, you develop a different attitude where you need to be able to feel something other than pain. You need to be able to find something within yourself that makes you happy. And as it happens with, with running, it's, it's not difficult to do. Um, at the same time, it's like when you run long, long, long distances, it actually almost makes the mind, I should say, numb to it, it, its own wants and its own vagaries and its own kind of like, like, like uh, restlessness. And it allows a person to listen to that inner voice a lot more easily. It filters out, long distance running filters out a lot of the other thoughts in our head, a lot of the other impulses, and gives you a, a deeper, truer sense of, of who you are in any given moment. And this might all sound like mumbo jumbo, but it's like, you know, like when, when you're sitting out in the ocean and, you know, you're, you're in between sets and you're, you're looking out, you know, you definitely feel that there's a totally different rhythm that your body has become attuned to. And that's the experience that most people have, whether they can articulate it or not, that most people can have when they're running. It's just that like, you know, getting that experience running is a lot more accessible yeah. um, than most other kind of solitary experiences in nature. Yeah. I wonder from spending uh, time around uh, Bushmen, what you noticed about their communities, their their social dynamics, their relationships, particularly because we live in a world that is so connected to the point where you know the very things that have connected us have also isolated us. I, I, I I'm I'm with you. I think that the question is like, what are we connected to? Mm -hmm. You know, we're always connected to something. The 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 Bushmen are connected, and traditionally they're connected to to purpose. They're connected to family. They're connected to other life forms, whether it's plants or animals. They're living in an area that they share with things that they can't communicate with and things that they don't try to control. And in our world of connectivity, it's all about control and it's not about harmony. You know, can you be in touch with everybody at every single moment? Can you kind of understand their impulses, why they're doing stuff? Can you kind of control other people's actions and control your own life through apps, through maps, through everything, through social media? Um, 
for and, and and it's a question of 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 aim. I'm not saying that traditional cultures are the most free cultures in the world that they're all exceptionally pure. Um, there's definitely issues, and there's a, a reason why we pursue something we would call modern. Um, at the same time, it's like they show us a lot of things that we've lost. What is it like to to what are the economic uh, circumstances of a situation like that? Because I assume they're not you know working with a model of capitalism. So how does a society function if money doesn't play a role? Well, th- this this is the interesting thing. I guess this this is your question of connectivity. Yeah. It's sad that what people can't avoid that anymore, and the Bushmen are 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 you know not immune to it either. They they were allowed to kind of live effectively unperturbed for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Um, but about 20 years ago, uh, mining companies discovered vast deposits of copper mm. under their land. And for the most part, the Bushmen have been forced to, to relocate uh, the same way that Native Americans have had to, um, primarily for, for resource extraction or for land grabs in the United States and, and, and Canada. Um, so Everything there is obviously in flux, and they can't escape the idea of capitalism. At the same time, it's like one of the the interesting things about my my own attraction to spirituality and coming across the path that I did was that Sri Chinmoy felt that you couldn't escape the world anymore, and that in order to kind of realize the highest, you had a better chance of doing that within the world than trying to find a place where you could be totally disconnected. At, at some stage, the world was going to find you. And if you did develop the kind of strength to be able to live in the world and recognize happiness, peace, purity, everything spiritual you know, within you and around you, you'd, you'd be a happier person. And when you look at traditional cultures and the influx of colonization and the influx of Western mindsets and standards, you know, they don't have the armor and the protection to be able to protect their own spiritual lives. And in that sense, oddly enough, you know, and my, my parents would have never guessed this, but people have a better opportunity or a better chance of, of living spiritual lives in the United States and in Western countries than they do in most other parts of the world, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we have a conversation like you and you and I are having, I always have to remind myself that in so many ways, so many of the things that we talk about in this show are, are coming from a place of privilege. Like this is a message for people of privilege. Like if somebody is trying to figure out how to survive, so much of what many of the people who come here and talk about is kind of irrelevant to them. And again, it's like, you know, there's there's benefits of connectivity. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that you no know, one could listen to your podcast anywhere at any time is an exceptional privilege in a different sense of the world word, you know? And again, it's like, I think that's where, that's how you and I were, were both raised. It's like, what is elite and what is opportunity? You know, what we do, I think, you know, depends on, on, well, what types of activities we choose to pursue really depend on two things. Are they going to, are those activities going to make us more complacent? Um, and that's, I guess, a, an offshoot of, of, of privilege, 
or are they going to help expand us and help us grow? And that and that's opportunity. Um, so you know, like the people that I've I've heard on your podcast really speak to opportunity and to let people know that we're in a place of tremendous advantage um, and tremendous access to a lot of things that can make us better, more fulfilled people. And when we do that, you know, the world becomes a better place. Hmm. So you mentioned that uh, you got to work with Forrest Whitaker and Ava Longoria. So, you know, anybody listening has probably heard of them. And I, I wonder when people become successful at a level where they have sort of recognition uh, just across culture, like mainstream recognition and kind of cultural icons, what, what enables that? Do you think that there is how you know luck plays a role in that and what do you think that we uh have as misperceptions about these people you know that's a that's a very good question i think it's hard to conceive of how much more complicated people's lives get when they have fame and for many people, not all people, it's not something that they've necessarily sought. And it leads them to, li- to live very, very different lives than a normal person would. If you, if you can think about just the, the connectedness today, you know, one of the thing I know, one of the things that I know from people at that level is like, number one, like the first rule of, of, being famous is never read the comments on your social media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas the rest of us, like we're dying to look at comments. Well, uh, like, we're like, oh my God, somebody commented. Well, Seth Godin talks about that. Seth actually says that he never reads his book reviews. He's like, what am I going to do? He said, that book has already been written. And he said, besides, he said, anonymous feedback from people I have absolutely no relationship will cause me to do nothing but hide. I never forgot that. That always stayed with me. I mean, that that is that is so true. At, at the same time, like we don't really have the experience and maybe don't even want to have the experience of like walking down the street and having everybody treat us like, like exotic animals. And this might've been different 20 years ago. I have no idea, but now it's like, if you're an evil Longoria walking down the street, you know, the people's interactions with you aren't necessarily always genuine. Mm-hmm. No one's going like, I guess the vast majority of people wouldn't go like, oh my God, you changed my life. I really love what you do. It's just from a distance, they pull out their phones and they take a picture or it's like, hey, Eva, can I take a selfie with you? Mm -hmm. And that might seem kind of novel to, 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 to you and I, but we could quickly see how in a day (laughs) that would get really old, really fast. And so there's, um, um, a much greater sense of invasiveness into everything that they do. And I find that a lot of people in those position positions only really have longevity in their career because they've got a spiritual path, because they pray or they meditate or they have a spiritual base. Um, they, they need that just as, as a, as not just for mental health, but it's like on, on a deep level of survival. Like they can't handle the forces that are thrown at them without having uh, deep roots. Yeah. It's funny. I, I heard Bradley Cooper talking to Oprah about this on uh, her podcast uh, when he was talking about A Star is Born, and he mentioned this very thing. He said, you know, this is kind of insanity because you go from, you know, sort of being a nobody to hangover coming out, and suddenly 
everywhere you go, you're, you're recognized. And he said, it just, he said, you know, people can lose their minds if they don't have something that grounds them. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that we don't realize is that a lot of the attention that they get, particularly online is negative. Mm -hmm. So it's like, imagine just opening up your favorite website and it was like, Sruni Rao is a fake. Oh, trust me. Like, you can see some like, of the vicious reviews and emails that I get. <laughs> like some of them are obnoxious. Yeah. And it's like, like, like that, that, that's, first of all, that, that's horrible that anybody would be obnoxious in, in the, in the in themselves to, to think that that's gonna, you know, have any positive effect on anybody. At the same time, it's like multiply that by 10,000. Yeah. And you know, you know, for example, like when when stuff goes bad with celebrities, I, I I don't know how they can make it through days. Like we all know cases where, you know, somebody retweets something mm -hmm. or sends out a tweet or puts out a post that for some reason hits a nerve or hits a slow news day, and all of a sudden is news everywhere. Yeah. And then they'll have their agents calling them, their managers calling them, their friends calling them, maybe even their parents calling them. Because their parents' friends are saying, "Oh, you know, your your son's on the news," um, and it's like having that type of pressure on a day to day basis, and at the same time being forced to create. Uh -huh. Also, that's the question. It's like with all that around you and that high level of judgment that's going to come out no matter what you do. How do you how do you develop the space to be creative? Mm. Wow. So, so, you know, that, I think that inevitably raises a question for me about this sort of second level of celebrity we created, because I think what we've done, you know, I, I said this with Chase Jarvis, I said, in so many ways, I feel that one of the great disservices that social media has been to our culture is this artificial sense of celebrity we've created, where people are famous just for being famous. It's kind of like, oh, I have a million followers on Instagram. That's why I'm famous. So, yes, but you haven't done a damn thing of value in the world. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you philosophically at, at the same time, you know, it, it's, it's a question of what type of contribution people want to make, right? I, I could probably put 99.999% of people in the entertainment industry, even if they've won Oscars into that category, you know, my question again without hopefully making this sound like egotistical is, are you creating something that makes people better people? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that I, I feel is that that's legacy building. Like who really remembers, you know, who was in this movie or that movie or who was like the fourth Avenger or anything like that, yeah. you know, and, that type, the type of fulfillment that I think, you know, we want to have when we're 60, 70, 80 is something where we look back and we say, like, I left it all on the table. You know, I, I left a certain legacy that was, that was positive. Um, and whether it lasts one, two, five, ten, a thousand years, yeah. I know that I hopefully, you know, it's inspired or was of service to, to someone, um, during my life. Yeah, it's funny when I, when I hear you describe that, I can't help but think about uh, a TV show like Friday Night Lights, which is probably one of my favorite TV shows of all time. 
And I was listening to Sam Jones interview Jason Cadams, who was actually, uh, you know, I think the creator of he he worked on Friday Night Lights as well as Parenthood, and he was talking about Coach Taylor uh, from Friday Night Lights. And oh, yeah. I felt that that conversation of this is the kind of father and this is the kind of husband that I want to be. I can't imagine how many men have looked at that character and said, yes, absolutely. Uh, and to me, that's kind of what you're talking about. It's you may not remember that Kyle Chandler played Coach Taylor, but 10 years from now, you might say, OK, that was a show that influenced the kind of father that I'd want to be. Yeah, was it clear eyes, pure hearts can't lose? Clear eyes, full hearts, I think. But yeah, full hearts. <laughs> yeah, tells you how many damn so times it- I've watched it. Yeah, so it, that 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 that's exactly it. It's like none of us are necessarily going to be Mother Teresa. We, we don't have that capacity. We don't have that dedication. We don't have that kind of like like grace. Um, but the question is, and this goes back to like our, the the beginning, like what defines success? Mm. You know, do we care better about being rich and famous, or do we care more about just being good people. And then what's the definition of, of a good person and how do you become a good person and why is it important even to be a good person? Yeah. So uh, on that note, I think I have two final questions for you. And this is something I've, I've asked a lot of people as I'm, I'm preparing to uh, finish up a proposal for another book. And it's a question about measuring your life. You know, we were just talking about social media, celebrity, you get so many ways that you can measure your life nowadays. So I wonder, you know, having gone through this spiritual path, having experienced the definitions of success you have from so many different angles, how do you measure your life? I frankly try to only measure my life in the moment, if that makes any sense. You know, I, I, I was never, again, I was never a filmmaker. I didn't go to film school. And I think if I'd had a rigid idea of really what success was, I wouldn't have been open to possibilities. You know, I just try to be a good person on a daily basis. And if I never make another film again, fine. If I end up doing something totally different, fine. But I I know that I can be of better service to people if I constantly work on my own happiness. And the happier I am, I feel the more productive I am. And the happier, happier I am, I feel the the more impact the stuff I'm working on has. Um, so in, in that sense, it's like I'm not necessarily li- not necessarily living day to day, but I try to measure myself each day, you know, to make sure that I am as happy as I can be, and that I I you know crossed any hurdles I might face with patience and perseverance. Um, it's very much like the 3,100 mile race in the movie. Like you can't win life in one day, but you, you could probably lose life in one day. You know, it's, you were all on pretty long roads and those 3,100 mile runners, like in the movie, you know, they, they have to have a lot of patience and a lot of perseverance. And then you just allow grace and good luck to, uh, to play their own parts. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, well, this has been really, really, really thought provoking, um, and insightful as I expected it would be actually far more than I expected it would be in this case. Uh, so I have one final question, which I know you've heard me ask, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I was hoping that you wouldn't have asked me that question (laughs) (laughs) because so many people 
you know, are, 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 are so much wiser than me. And you've had such incredible people on the show. Uh, in my own humble opinion, the uh, question is, how can we be true to ourselves? And that, dis- that entails understanding a sense of our purpose in life. And that's a journey that everybody, I, I feel, has to take with more dedication and with more seriousness than anything else in life. You know, I'm not sure that a person can be a great mother or a great father or a great teacher or even a great student without developing some connection to their hearts, to their souls, through inner discipline, through prayer, through meditation, and trying to find out one's purpose in life and trying to just stick to that purpose. And I think that's that's the idea of, in my, in my own concept, my own kind of meager concept of what unmistakable means. It's that pure dedication to your truest self. Hmm. Wow. Uh, well, this has been really, really, really amazing. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join uh, our listeners and sharers. Oh, don't say that. It's, it's, it's an absolute honor for me. And I hope that this is the first of many conversations. And I hope the next one is uh, in Cardiff or <laughs> yeah. in Encinitas. Or in the water. Swamis. We, we could go to Swamis and really reflect on Eastern spirituality. As we the most crowded life at that point break. <laughs> I know. Uh, we'll go there at four in the morning on yeah. a full moon. Well, uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? So the film 3100 Run and Become is available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play. Uh, our Instagram is at 3100film. Uh, my own Instagram is at Mr. Sanjay R. My last name is Robble R. Um, working on a bunch of great creative things and you know hopefully you know it'll be there'll be something there that'll uh help people you know get a little bit more inspired in life Mm, awesome and for everybody listening we'll wrap the show with that thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast while you were listening were there any moments you found fascinating inspiring instructive maybe even heartwarming Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide, it's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.